Greetings in Jesus' name. It's a beautiful time of the year. I um, I hope there's no one here who thinks it's too beautiful to be inside here, because to be in where you can be with other with God's people and worship the Lord. And to sing and to open the word of God, that is better than even a nice day. (laughs) Far as value, anyhow. But it is a nice time of year. Beautiful. Yet we sang that song. I think, Doug, I think you picked it. The skies are lowering overcast. We live on a fallen world, and it's not quite perfect yet. Not quite is an understatement. (laughs) So, yeah, well, if you would, would you have time to uh, just let us stand for a word of prayer before we begin the message? Let's pray. Lord, we are grateful to you. Thank you, Lord, for nature. Thank you, Lord, that everywhere we look in nature, we see that you are there. You are the architect. You are the sustainer. You are the provider of our lives. And, Lord, you also have provided more for us. Lord, this world is not our home. It is not the end. And, Lord, you have a better place coming for us. Thank you for that. I pray, Lord, that you would prosper our time here together this morning. I pray, Lord, you would instruct us, encourage our hearts, inspire us, Lord, to press on and to serve you with all we have. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. May be seated. I'm back to the study on 1 Peter, and you can turn to uh, 1 Peter chapter 3, and we'll be also starting at verse 12 with a little bit of review, but the title this morning is Keep Your Conscience Clear, which is only a partial title. In other words, the, the message is bigger than just the conscience, but that became the main body. The last message, which was quite a while ago that I had on First Peter, was on sanctifying God in the heart. Peter, in this part of the message, is encouraging, like Peter is a shepherd, he is feeding the sheep, and he's encouraging his people to live well, to live righteous and virtuous lives regardless of their circumstances. And he says there in 1 Peter 3, 12, and we'll read a few verses here at the beginning. For the eyes of the Lord, in other words, live good lives, live righteous lives, live virtuous lives. For the eyes of the Lord are over the righteous. His ears are open unto their prayers. I was going to read verse that's going to start at verse 10. Let's read it. Start at verse 10. Yeah. For he that will love life and see good days, let him refrain his tongue from evil and his lip that they speak no guile. 
let him eschew evil. Now, that's a strong word, eschew evil. Really, really despise and keep yourself from it. I mean, it's a strong word. It, you had nothing to do with it. And do good and seek peace, like eschew evil and do good. Let him seek peace and ensue it. And again, it's a strong word, not just simply seek it, but really go after it. And here's the, um, the verse I read, For the eyes of the Lord are over the righteous, and his ears are open unto their prayers, but the face of the Lord is against them that do evil. And that last verse there is actually a, what we would call a spiritual law. It's a spiritual law that applies to all, like like a natural law, when you have a helium balloon, it'll go, and it's filled with helium, it'll go up. And you have a stone and you let go of it, it'll go down. That's a law, a natural law. Here is a spiritual law. The Lord will do what he has said. The eyes of the Lord are over the righteous. His ears are open to their prayers. If you are righteous... The eyes of the Lord are on you. He's open to your prayers. If you are evil, does it mean actually doing bad things? Then the lies, then, then, um, the Lord is against them that do evil. See, God is consistent, like, like the natural law, God is consistent with the moral law. He will do what He says. And therefore, you know, when it comes to the natural law, we actually plan on the natural law working. <laughs> so you don't plan to hit a tree with your automobile at 60 miles an hour because it's not just the fact that you will actually destroy your car. You might destroy more than your car because the natural law just has an effect and so we plan our lives, natural laws have effect. And it, let's say it this way. Okay, spiritual law is the same way. Plan on it. This is the way the moral universe works. Base your life decisions on it. God is absolutely consistent. But then we come to another part here, and that is people. People are not as consistent as God. And we live among people. I remember the story that John D. told many years ago, and he apparently got it somewhere. But this uh, high school-age girl came home from school slammed the door shut as she came into the house and went up into her bedroom and closed the door. Come home from school. So her mom seen her go and she goes to the bedroom door and knocks and says, everything all right? Oh, what? No, she said, what's wrong? That's what she said. What's wrong? And she said, people! People are not as dependable. 
Generally, if you are helpful and kind and beneficial, people will respond in kind. That's the general. That's what Proverbs is all about. A soft answer generally turns away wrath. Live wisely. Life turns out better that way. There's a lot of unnecessary drama that you can avoid if you live wisely. So, so generally, no one will harm you. Uh, but yeah, but not always with people. And Peter is fully aware of it. That's what is in the next verse. Verse 13. And who is he that will harm you if you be followers of that which is good? And verse 14. But, and if ye suffer for righteousness sake, happy are ye. And do not, be not afraid of their terror, neither be ye troubled. So, no one would generally harm you, but if it happens, you're living righteously, and someone actually does do negative things towards you, if you suffer at their hands at no fault of your own, just know this. God is still, you are still blessed by God. People will change, but God's moral law remains exactly what it's going to be. And they can't, nobody can change that. You cannot change the natural laws. You cannot change the spiritual laws of the universe. And so do not be troubled or afraid. And then verse 15, but sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. And that was the verse, the, the passage or the phrase that I did not understand until I studied it last time. And I understood it best when I understood what people generally do, the opposite. When people dishonor the Lord God in their hearts and in their lives, they use his name in vain. They, um, they ignore him. They ignore his commands. And some go as far as to uh, vilify God and say he's he's a nasty all the things that are going on and they blame God and they they do the opposite um, the children of Israel I thought I was trying to think of an example that meets a little more concrete and I think of the children of Israel when Moses was leading them out of the land of Egypt and and they went through the Red Sea and then they got into some hard times they got in some difficulties um, this context here is suffering because of wicked people. In this case, the children of Israel weren't suffering because of wicked people. They were actually delivered from slavery, but they had difficult circumstances. And either one will apply. So... They were not experiencing persecution. God had delivered to them, but they were experiencing hardship. And in that difficulty, they could have, they could have sanctified the Lord in their heart. They could have thought good things about God. God delivered us. Look what he did to the children of Israel. Look what he did to our enemies. Look how he cared for us. They could have sanctified the Lord God in their hearts. But instead, 
when the hardship came so great and their hearts were not right towards God, they actually unsanctified the Lord God in their heart. What did they do? They, instead of honoring and hallowing God in their difficult situation, they blamed him. You brought us out into this wilderness to die. That's what they said. That's very dishonoring. Blaming God. And as you go on later on, like Joshua and Caleb, when they came actually up to it, they had a different spirit. They had sanctified the Lord God in their hearts. And they persevered when times were tough. And Peter is telling the early Christians here that times are going to get tough. People are going to treat you badly. They were facing persecution. But just because your circumstances change, just remember, God has not changed. Towards you, God is exactly the same. And then he quoted from the prophet Isaiah. Um, and I'm going to read it in the, in the uh, paraphrase version. It's a relevant word for us today. Isaiah, you don't have to turn there, but Isaiah 8, 12 and 13. Don't call everything a conspiracy like they do. And don't live in dread of what frightens them. Sanctify the Lord of hosts himself and let him be your fear and let him be your dread. And he shall be for thee a sanctuary. He will keep you safe, in other words. So, in place of running down for us every, every possible conspiracy theory that comes down the road and being scared stiff of what's coming our way, instead of that, we would do better. We would do much better in reflecting on our God than on being terrified at what's coming. That doesn't mean that you're not aware. You understand that. But it's, it's, the, it's the emphasis. Reflecting and meditating on the goodness and the power and the care of our God. And then we will be prepared to do what we're really called to do, which is the last verse, the last part of verse 15. Be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. And so the summary, this is actually a summary of last messages, last message so far. Do good. Who will harm you if you do what's right? But if or when someone does challenge or attack you, don't be afraid or be troubled. Rather, set the Lord apart in your heart as holy. And be ready to explain and defend your good actions and beliefs. Do so in an humble and a respectful way. I may not have all the answers, but I have reasons for the hope that is inside of me. It's real. And now we come to the topic this morning in verse 16. 
This is just I, the reason I felt I had to go back is because this 16 is in this whole entire context. And there had a little bit of review. Having a good conscience that whereas they speak evil of you as evildoers, they may be ashamed that falsely accuse your good conversation in Christ. So Peter is saying, have a good conscience. Possess. Possess a good conscience. And that's not the only place where God tells us to keep a good conscience. Paul tells us, and I'll just read a few verses here. He tells it to Timothy several times, and one's very specifically. In 1 Timothy 1, 18 and 19, he said to Timothy, This charge I commit unto thee, son Timothy. According to the prophecies which went before on thee, that thou mightest war, a good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience, which some, having put away concerning faith, have made shipwreck. And uh, just a little earlier in that same letter, in uh, verse 5 to 7, the aim, and this is out of the ESV, the aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and sincere faith. So you have a purity of heart, sincerity of faith, and a good conscience. And all three of those go together. If you take away purity of heart, you will not have a good conscience. If you take away sincerity of faith, you will not have a good conscience either. So all three of those actually work together, but we'll be looking at the conscience this morning. Our conscience is something that's a part of us. We have it, and yet it's not a part of us. It's, it's one of the strange things. I wonder, I wonder if it go, it would be really interesting to see, hear in, from your mind what each of you would describe your conscience. Because it's, it's a unique thing. Because Every one of us has one, and yet we actually can't, in a sense, can't control it. It's something else besides us. Um, actually, um, I think it's a BE commentary said, Bible ex- exhibition commentary, commentary said, the word, con- our word conscience, come from two Latin words, meaning con means with, and sio, which means to know. Our conscience is that internal judge that witnesses to us and enables us to know and either approving our actions or accusing them. And someone had also said that not only does it judge our actions, but it nudges us. Well, it nudges us towards what's right, but it only does that because it, we feel guilty when we violate our conscience. So we get a nudge. Our conscience may be compared to a window that lets in the light of God's truth. If we persist in disobeying, the window gets dirtier and dirtier until light cannot enter. This leads to a defiled conscience. A seared conscience is one that has been so sinned against that it no longer is sensitive to what is right and wrong. And it is even possible for the conscience to be so poisoned that it approves things that are bad and accuses when the person does good. 
The Bible calls that an evil conscience. And that would be the example given here was like a criminal that feels guilty when he squeals on his friends, but feels really good when his criminal activity, criminal activity succeeds. <laughs> he actually has a conscience that is completely twisted around. And if you look, and we could talk a lot about people's twisted consciences today. Um, I don't have any, well, there's just many, many examples of, a, of consciences that are completely turned around today. So, there are all kinds of adjectives we can put before conscience. But I suppose it goes without saying that a good conscience is one that does not accuse me of having done, of doing, or having done something wrong that hasn't been remedied. That's what a good conscience is. I'm not being accused by my conscience. I want to explore this a little further. Our conscience is not God. In our day and age, there is, there is actually to a, some certain tendency to deify the conscience. But let, let, I'll get that later. Our, our, our conscience is actually not a deity inside of us. It's not infallible. And this infallibleness can go two ways. Um, that is one is when our conscience condemns us for doing something that God doesn't really care about. God doesn't care if you do it, but your conscience condemns you. That's called a weak conscience. And, of course, the scripture talks about the weak conscience. Uh, someone not eating meat offered to idols and things like that. And I just uh, thought, well, what? There's limits to that. I have a thing of example. Okay, sometimes we might eat at a restaurant that has a liquor license, so they also serve alcohol. But we go there, and we don't. So my conscience is clear. I can go to a restaurant that has a liquor license. I don't think God cares about that because we might go there for the food. I mean, we do. <laughs> and if the atmosphere is not bad. But there's limits to that, right? I mean, I wouldn't go to the bar and get food even though they have food at a bar. And so there's, there's that limits. And, and that is actually very clear there in, in a. First Corinthians, the meat offered unto idols, God doesn't care. There's only one God. Those idols are nothing. But there are limits to that. You don't actually go into the idol temple and eat with, you know, there, there's actually a place where you actually cross the border. But, but a point, point here is a weak conscience is, uh, we, we have, our conscience is not deity. It is not absolutely infallible. And so we may be condemned you may be condemned this morning about something that God doesn't care about. Now, don't violate that conscience. Just be aware that that can be a possibility. The other way in which we is when we do something that God actually does care about. He's either against it or he's for it, and you don't do it or you don't comply. And yet, 
your conscience doesn't accuse you. That's possible too. For some reason or another, your conscience is not condemning you for doing something that God says is wrong. Or you're not doing something that God says you should do, and you're not condemned. And that's where I say some people have elevated the conscience to the level of a deity, where the conscience becomes the ultimate guide. And then you hear statements like, well, it really doesn't matter what you do, just you do what your conscience tells you. If your conscience tells you that, that's good. If my conscience tells me that, that's good. And we'll just, that's taking conscience to an area of deity because it's not intended to be that. I can actually, this is looking down that line, this is, I'm not saying this statement. I'm, I'm using it as an example. I can divorce my wife. Because of what she's doing to me, and my conscience is not condemning me because of all those emotions and all that, <clears throat> or vice versa, husband, my conscience is clear, and we ask, what's the matter with that picture? Does God judge us based on our conscience? What do you think? Well, to some degree he does. Because Jesus, and I didn't look up the scripture, but I know it says there where he, he said when someone does something, he knew something was wrong and he did it anyhow, he's going to be beaten with many stripes. Remember that passage? And then there's someone who did things that are worthy of stripes and yet didn't know it. But he'll be beaten too, but with fewer stripes. But judgment still comes. (laughs) So the person didn't know he was doing wrong, and yet he was doing wrong. Now, he should have known. I believe he should have known. That's, That's the whole point. So, God does take into consideration the knowledge that our conscience is exposed to. But what is conscience? Does it mean that as long as I don't feel guilty, everything is just fine, and that is a good conscience? It might be good to remember that guilt, guilt, we're talking about, you know, when your conscience is not good, when your conscience, when you do something wrong, you should feel guilty. So then we're talking about now you're doing something wrong and yet you're not feeling guilty. (laughs) Guilt is not a feeling. What is guilt? Anybody ought to give it, would anyone give a guess what guilt might be? If it's not a feeling, what is it? Guiltiness. (laughs) Good good guess. Thank you. That's good. It's a condition. Guilt is a condition. Um, just like love, I say love, I'm going to say primarily. Love is not primarily a feeling. Love is primarily action. So it might be good to remember. Yeah, so guilt is primarily a condition. It 
may include a bothered conscience. It may be connected, but not necessarily so. And it's a little bit like cancer. So suppose you are just not feeling well, or you have this pain, or you just run down and you don't know what's wrong with you, and you go to the doctor, and he gives you inspection and tests and all that, and you discover you have cancer. So, or you're feeling 100% fine. You go to the doctor for a routine checkup, and he discovers you have cancer. In both cases, you have cancer. One In one case, you actually felt really bad. In the other case, you felt not bad at all. But if you have a good doctor, he will tell you you have cancer, and he will try to persuade you to make you feel like you have cancer so that you'll be motivated to do something. <clears throat> Because if you don't do something now, something negative and bad is going to happen down the road. And you can avert that if you do something now. Guilt is the condition of being or doing things wrong in God's sight. Your conscience may or may not bother you. But that is actually not the issue. The issue is what does God say? And that's one of the reasons we come here every Sunday to get the doctor checkup. <laughs> well, you know. That's the... And there we might discover that we are guilty in some area that we didn't know, that we should know. <clears throat> and then we can take action. When we are found guilty, we must take action. And if we do it right, in the end, if you take the proper action, you will have a good conscience. Because you're no longer guilty. We need to do something about the condition of guilt and our conscience that needs to align with that. We need to be cured. We need The cancer has to be put into remission. And so if we take the proper action, we're no longer guilty. We have been forgiven for what we have done wrong, and we have quit doing it. Or we have started doing it, whatever the case is. There is, here's the scripture, there is therefore now no more condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the spirit. And there you have the two things. The two things. They're in Christ Jesus. Christ has forgiven their sins. If your sins are forgiven, you're no longer guilty. And you walk after the Spirit. And if you walk after the Spirit, your life is righteous, so you're not doing wrong things. I mean, you're talking in generalities here. And then we have this verse in 1 John 1. Nine And if any man sin, we have an advocate. I don't think that's one nine. Maybe we do. It is. And if any man sin, we have an advocate, Jesus Christ the righteous, who forgives us what we confess, when we confess our sins. 
and he cleanses us from all unrighteousness. And so our conscience is cleared, is clear because we are fessed up, forgiven up, and lived up. And we have a clear or a good conscience. And so, Peter said to these Christians who were facing opposition from people, that's the context, they're facing hard times. And in in that setting, if you have a good conscience, when people are accusing you or opposing you and your conscience is not, is, is good, that might be all you have. You might have no other defense except a clear conscience. But what a defense that is. You can stand up straight when the winds of adversary are against you if your conscience is clear. You can stand. It's a powerful place to stand. You can stand like some have in history. Here I stand. I can do no other, so help me God. (laughs) A good conscience is a good defense. False accusations will come, but they don't stick. Why don't they stick? Because they're not true. Or if they're true, they were fessed up and forgiven. They're taken care of. The conscience was cleansed. The defiled conscience was has been cleared and washed. The dirty conscience was made clean. So there you stand. People don't like you. They don't like what you represent. You make them feel guilty. Your life makes them feel guilty, or maybe your words make them feel guilty. You will not accept their values. And some of them then will oppose you or malign you and speak evil. So you're accused of being a sexist or misogynist, which means this is for the men's side now. Because you are against, you're accused of being against women because you believe in differing roles. You believe in headship and submission. And you're accused of that. But how can you have a clear conscience? You have treated women well. You have used your position of authority to sacrifice your life, your things in your life, to bless them and to nurture them. You did not abuse them or abuse your position. You did not treat women as objects to be used. Now you are accused of that because of your belief. You're accused of that. But the women, but your conscience is clear. The women in your life feel respected and honored.
Even though the world says you're this and you're that, you know you're not because of how you have treated the women in your life and your conscience is clear and you can stand. And if it's not that way, then there's a pathway. I wish I could have thought one of for the ladies like that. I just thought of one other example. Or general. So you don't participate in politics and you don't go to war and you won't assist your country against the enemy. And yet you reap the benefits of a strong military and an organized police force, but you won't help. And the accusations come. How do you clear your conscience there? You're not pulling your part. But you know that you're not using these benefits. I talk about the strong military and the police force and the organization, the government, all that. You're not using that to build your kingdom. You're building the kingdom of God. This is your focus. You care about those that are in need, in crisis, and those who are in crisis situations. You're not a parasite. You are a positive host in this country. Not by participating in the military or the government, but in assisting with the ailments of society. And by prayer. By creating solid, secure, and stable communities that grow and persist and are able to assist others. You are not a parasite. You are a benefit. And your conscience, if you are building the kingdom of God, if you're using, it's like, um, what is it there in Timothy, I guess, is where it says that you should pray for the government that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and honesty. But the purpose is, yes, that we can create these stable communities. That's some of the thing. But it's so that we can work for the kingdom of God in, 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 in flourishing ways. So, you have a good conscience because you're not living for yourself. <clears throat> the government officials in, in Babylon, they schemed to get Daniel in trouble because his life and work were a witness against them. Daniel hadn't done anything wrong and his conscience was clear. And in that case, it backfired on them. Same way with Joseph. His conscience was clear. He was accused falsely. They are good examples of us how to maintain a good conscience. So if we are to maintain a good conscience, we must deal with sin in our lives and we need to confess it immediately because we need to keep that window of our conscience clean. 
you know what it is that the uh, wind, window washer that you get no streaks you know and you get to you're supposed to get the one that well I never found any that didn't leave any streaks have you <laughs> but I guess some is better than others but keep that window clean and then we must spend need to spend time in the word of God and with other people to let a lot of light shine into our conscience. <clears throat> a strong conscience is the result of obedience based on knowledge. And a strong conscience makes for a strong Christian witness. It also gives us strength in times of persecution and difficulty. No Christian should ever suffer for evil doing, and no Christian should be surprised if he suffers for well doing, because our world is so mixed up that people call evil good and good evil, and put on darkness for light and light for darkness. And I don't know the way the general culture is going. Uh, I, I hate to be a pessimist in this because sometimes things swing, things are moving. And that at some point we can't even speak something without getting into trouble. I don't know if that time will come. I know that in some places it's already that way. And if it keeps on going that way, we are definitely going to be persecuted in some form. But sometimes when when things swing so far one way, sometimes they also swing back with a backlash. So I, I don't know what the future is. I'm not going to make a prophecy this morning. But um, the point is, Let's have a good conscience, and we'll be ready for whatever happens. Having a good conscience doesn't mean we are perfectly right and holy in all areas of life. But it does mean that here, in this situation, I handled myself correctly. My conscience is clean. And there's room for growth. And that's where confession and repentance and prayer and counsel and wisdom and fellowship and all those things come in. So having a good conscience that whereas they speak evil of you as evildoers, they may be ashamed that falsely accused your good conversation in Christ. Those who defame you may eventually be ashamed when they observe your good behavior. That's how we have a good conscience by behaving rightly according to God's way. And there are no shortcuts. There's no get out of jail free card in having a good conscience. What there is in this sense that we have forgiveness. That is a get out of jail free card. But there's a little more to that than that. In the sense of lifestyle, and commitment, and consistency, and denying the flesh. There, there is no that that the only way, unless you want to somehow dull your conscience, which is not yeah, you can't have a good conscience either way. But remember, even with a good conscience. Even when you're facing opposition, do so with meekness and humility. That's the context here. Because you're not proving anything. You're not trying to prove anything. You're just bringing glory to God. That's all you're doing. So you don't have to prove to them you're right. 
they may accept and they may reject, at least for now, but you did the right thing, your conscience is clear, and when Christ comes back, you have a clear conscience. And here is the gospel truth. Verse 17. For it is better, if the will of God be so, that ye suffer for well-doing than for evil-doing. <laughs> and then he just gives the example of Christ. For Christ also, so he's just telling us to follow Christ's example. Christ also has once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit. <clears throat> being put to death in the flesh, we understand very well. Christ died on the cross. Being made alive in the Spirit comes up in chapter 4. <laughs> so I'm going to just pass over that one for the most part. For the sake of time, we won't get into that today. But right now, we're coming into some very interesting and hard-to-understand verses in the Scripture. I would love to hear one of you teach on the last four or five verses here. <laughs> I don't know if I heard anybody ever speak on it, but I did some study. Very interesting words, so let's read it. Verse 19 to 22. So he's talking about uh, being quickened by the Spirit, by which also he went and preached unto the spirits in prison, which sometime were disobedient when once the long-suffering of God waited in the days of Noah while the ark was a preparing, wherein few, that is, eight souls were saved by water. The like figure, whereunto even baptism doth also now save us, not the putting away of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience towards God. By the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who is gone into heaven and is on the right hand of God, angels and authorities and powers being made subject unto him. After Jesus' death on the cross, his spirit was made alive, and then he had a prisoned ministry. He went to a prison. He went to a spirit prison, and he proclaimed something unto them, to them. And it seems like these spirits have been in prison since the days of Noah. So what's going on here? Why are they in prison? Well, it says they were disobedient. The paraphrase of this verse says, And so he, so he went and preached to the spirits in prison, those who disobeyed God long ago, when God waited patiently while Noah was building his boat. And Peter explains a little more in Second Peter, in uh, 2 verses 4 and 5, and it just simply, I'll just read it. For if God spared not the angels that sinned, but cast them down to hell and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved unto judgment, 
and spared not the old world, but saved Noah, the eighth person, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood upon the world of the ungodly. That seemed to be like the same kind of situation, and you have it also in Jude 6. And the angels, which kept not their first estate, but left their own habitation, he hath reserved in everlasting chains under darkness unto the judgment of the great day. <laughs> so my understanding is that's where Jesus went to, to these angels that have been put in judgment because of their disobedience around the days of Noah. Hmm. And uh, in, the, in, the, in the testimony or afterwards, you can give you your perspective or corrections <laughs> as you see fit. But um, and in, in, Gen- in Genesis 6, 4, has, a, has these, and I'm going to read this in the ESV. It says, the Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterwards, when the sons of God came into the daughters of men, and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old the men of renown. And that's something going on there. This verse, some people think that angels cohabitated with women and got children out of them, and these were super, super human powers, whatever, with the intention of taking over the earth. I, I don't know. I don't think I can accept that. I, I don't know. The traditional interpretation of this verse in Genesis is the one. I, the one that I grew up with is that the godly line of Seth, those the 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 young men of the godly line, looked and saw the the worldly women, worldly girls. They were very very beautiful, and so they left their culture and married these and lost the godly culture through that. And so we were told growing up. Don't marry worldly girls. That was the application of that verse. Marry a godly girl. And, uh, and it would, I mean, the, uh, the, um, the outcome would fit that in one sense is that sense of in the end there was only Noah and his family left. And so that godly line of Seth just diminished somehow. But uh, so I don't know for sure which way. <clears throat> but these spirits that we're talking about are fallen angels who, because of their particular rebellion, they have been imprisoned ever since the, t- the days of Noah. And and this is my thoughts, my my application to that. If those prison, if God would not have chained them and and uh, kept them in a prison where they don't have access to do whatever they were doing, if God would not have done that, the world today would be a horribly worse place. But God, this place before the flood, whatever was happening there, God in His wisdom brought judgment on these angels and secured them. And they couldn't no longer do what they were doing. 
That's the mercy of God for us and the judgment of God for those angels. He saw it to fit to restrain those wicked, evil spirits. Now, why did Jesus go to them? (laughs) And what did he tell them? Well, I don't think the Bible tells us. Um, Well, what, what do you think he might have told them? Anybody have any idea? It's speculation, possibly, but you have any speculation? If you know, put your hand up. <laughs> well, he didn't give him the gospel because angels don't get saved. They don't have the opportunity for salvation. So he didn't go there and preach the gospel to them. And, and now you can make a choice. That's not what he did. We can be pretty certain of that. It's not a message of redemption. The general thought is, and it's not my thoughts, but I agree with it. The general thought is Jesus, um, those angels that are under guard and kept under chains of darkness, they were their their captain was the devil. I think that Jesus went Jesus went through the cross, he died, but then his spirit was made alive, however that however you want to interpret that he won the victory over the devil jesus went to these angels and he proclaimed his victory and and did that mean that beforehand they didn't know it i i don't know but that's the best application that i uh, explanation that i have found that i can understand <clears throat> a declaration of victory over satan and all his hosts so their their uh, judgment was their doom was secured. And then he goes on. The light figure were unto even baptism. Let me see if I'm in the right place here. Okay. Yeah, we had just read about uh, the Noah. The ark was prepared, eight souls were saved by water. The like figure whereunto even baptism doth also now save us, not the putting away of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience towards God by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So, now we get to baptism. <laughs> baptism is a type. It's a shadow. It represents something else. The antitype is the real thing. There are lots of types of Christ in the Bible. Uh, the antitype is Christ. And we think that the opposite anti is the less thing. But no, the antitype is the real thing. And then the type is what represents the real thing. That's how that, how that works. Uh, Moses was a type of Christ. Um, well, it depends on your eschatology but most of the first time he came to his people they rejected him <laughs> the second time he came he actually led them out now if you think of if you if, you, if your eschatology lines up with that the first time jesus came to the jews they rejected him the second time they're going to receive him but that's another <laughs> topic but um he was definitely a type of christ and how he led god's people out of bondage um other types of Christ. Joseph was a type of Christ. He went before 
and secured a place of salvation for his people. Um, David, the type of Christ, a kingliness and so on. Uh, Isaac being put on the altar is probably the best type of Christ you can get in the Old Testament. The only begotten son put on sacrificed the type. And uh, you had the bronze serpent in the wilderness is put up. And whoever looked on it would be healed at the type of Christ. There's so many of them. I don't know, you could go probably hundreds of them. But what here is, here it says baptism. It says baptism saves you. <laughs> so are you getting saved when you get baptized? What does it say there? Even baptism doth also now save us. But remember, baptism is a figure. So remember that. Baptism is a type of the flood. Did the water save Noah? Did the water save Noah? No one's shaking their heads or yes or no. Do you know? Did the water save Noah? No, the water did not save Noah. What saved Noah? The ark, right? In the ark. I mean, it's faith. I mean, the whole thing. But finally, it was the ark. <clears throat> the water was the judgment. And the boat was their savior. And that boat is a, it's a type of Christ and that one door. And so the type is the water. You're, we are not saved by baptism. Baptism is a representation of what we went through. You went in the water. You were buried. Your old life was buried with Christ. Then you emerge out of the water on the other side with the resurre- into the resurrection power of Christ. That's what baptism represents. It's a type. It's a type of the real thing. It's not going into the water that saves you. It's the answer of a good conscience towards God that saves you. Your sins are forgiven. When you you trusted in Christ, you actually confessed and you believe and you are cleansed from your sin. Your sins are forgiven. And then you get up and you follow Christ. If the Spirit's been put inside of you. It's not the removal of the filth of the, of the film of the flesh, like it says here, very clear, not the putting away of the filth of the flesh. It's not the dunking, but the representation, the antitype. And so this is what saves you, and this is what gives you a clear conscience. Lord, I abandon my old life. I place my trust in you, and you can have free reign in my life. You had died for me, and you rose again. You overcame the devil. You satisfied the wrath or judgment that was coming my way. You took care of it, Christ, Lord Jesus. You took care of it. I am released from the punishment and condemnation that was coming to me. You took it. And not only did you take that, but then you came to dwell in me, and now I can become like you. 
baptism represents all of that. And when you have all of that, you have a good conscience. The answer of a good conscience towards God So I'm going to think we're going to stop at this point. I mean, I could even, we could, I didn't even get into verse 22. I didn't study for that. But the fact that the Lord Jesus, who's gone into heaven, is at the right hand of God, angels and authorities and powers being made subject to him, simply talked about the victory of Christ and that there's absolutely no question in us committing ourselves to the Lord Jesus we we are secure. <laughs> there's 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 no question anymore. The summary of the teaching today, regardless of your circumstances, good or bad, live righteously and keep your conscience clean. Two, opposition is to be expected. All of God's righteous heroes experienced that and so did Jesus. Three, Jesus in his victory could demonstrate to the fallen angel that he was the true king. Four, this brings up Noah and the flood. They were saved through the waters of judgment by a big boat, so we are saved by what baptism represents. And a few thoughts here. This is is stemming off the thoughts of Noah. We must serve God by faith and not put any trust into results. And that's because of Noah. 120 years a preacher, and only seven people with him. (laughs) Uh, Noah is, is, there's three people, it's one place in the Old Testament where God is saying through the prophet, that if these three Heroes of the faith would stand before me, wouldn't change my mind. Noah was one of them. Noah, and who were the other two? Does anybody remember? If these three men would stand before me, anybody remember who those three men were? Okay. That's, that's, but Noah was one of them. You know? <laughs> Daniel and Moses and Noah, right? Okay. Okay. Thank you. If Daniel and Moses and Noah would stand before me, wouldn't change my mind. But Noah was one of the three really important people. And who did he have? Seven people. So what I'm saying here is be faithful to God and don't look at necessarily the outcome. Do not, don't trust the results. Now, sometimes, sometimes we can use more wisdom and do better and all those things come into place. But faithfulness is what God calls for. Jesus looked like a total failure when he died on the cross. (laughs) Absolute. And that was the greatest victory ever that ever will be. So our goal is to be zealous and faithful. Live righteously to get and to maintain a good conscience and to follow the example of Jesus. May God help us in that.